0: You're listening to The 123 Show with me, Noreen Mayer, on this Friday afternoon. And since it's Friday, I'm really excited uh, to welcome back our co-host of the program, Karen Koh. Karen, it's great to see you today. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, Noreen. Great, as always, to be back here on a Friday afternoon with you um,
0: for the Agenda Cafe, my favorite time of the week. It is. That was my line. It's my favourite time oh, of the sorry. week. Yes. <laughs> and um, I stole your line. <laughs> we've got a great topic today, a topic that I think all our listeners should tune into. And we are live this afternoon on Facebook, uh, Noreen Mayer on RTHK Radio 3. So I'd love for our listeners to be viewers uh, and join us there. So what's the big topic that we're discussing today?
1: Well, Noreen, it's, it's a pretty serious topic. It's something that many people would regard as taboo, so it's good that we can talk about it here. We're talking about support for survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Also, what life is like after being a victim of sexual violence. And unfortunately, as we've covered in previous shows, sexual assault and violence is happening everywhere in the world. Um, It hasn't sort of gone down as time has gone by. And while the taboos about talking about it are starting to come down, there are still a lot of misperceptions. There's a lot of victim blaming. There's a lot of shame around people telling their stories and sharing their experiences. And survivors often don't have a place or or sometimes even a way to process those experiences themselves or get the right kind of support. So um, actually in Hong Kong, There is some support and one of those support groups is called Talk Hong Kong. And its mission is to offer the power and comfort of fellowship to survivors. They have monthly meetings where survivors can meet and and talk about um, their experiences, and they then also want to shine a light on the scale of the situation of sexual violence in Hong Kong. So we are delighted and honoured actually to be joined by two members from Talk Hong Kong to tell us more. We have with us Tara Edgar, who is the founder of Talk Hong Kong, and Tara is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse herself, and Beth Janelle, who's a member of Talk Hong Kong's advisory network. She's also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Um, professionally, Beth leads FTI Consulting's Asia Risk and Investigations Practice, and she specializes in cross border matters involving fraud and corruption, risk management investigations, and compliance program operations. So, uh, Tara and Beth, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for yeah.
2: having so us. So glad to be here.
1: I mean, I have to say um, a a really huge appreciation from from both Noreen and I, because it is really hard to talk about these things. And these are traditionally the conversations that either you don't have or you have behind closed doors. And and it's not easy to to go public with it. But if you you don't mind, can you share with us your personal stories? Um, Because I think those are really what is powerful for people to hear. Maybe Tara, if you wanna go first.
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason I called it the group talk. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you can talk about these things, you know, from a policy Mm -hmm. level, from a society level, but if there's not a personal story attached, sometimes it is a little harder for people to absorb, you know, whether they're in government or they're simply parents. Um, So my story is that I was abused by my father between 10 and 14 and never dealt with it at all until my mid forties. And I didn't realize how much it was affecting my life in that period. But I think there's something about being in your mid forties and getting a little more confident in life in general. And I started to remember and started to want to kind of tackle that as a positive project that could help me moderate my own emotions a lot better. So I went to a therapist and started working with her. And after a couple of years, Uh, She said, oh, you know, I I think you should really find a support group, you know, of your peers to talk to. Why don't you go look for one? And I was thinking, well, why doesn't she just tell me (laughs) what that group (laughs) is? But uh, she had a good plan. So after a couple of weeks, I went back and said, there's nothing, there's nothing in English anyway. Um, And she said, oh, well, you know, you might think about doing something about that one day. And that made me very nervous at first. And I thought, you know, God, could I possibly be the right person? What do I know about it in my own experience? Uh, but in in trying to find resources for that, and I did find some resources about how to start a group in the States, I also just realized there aren't many experts anywhere and that I'm in the right position in life and uh, in the mood to be able to tell my own personal story and without negatively impacting anyone else. So it was the right timing and the right challenge. And I'm really healed a lot by it myself, by doing it and hoping to make a change.
0: Tara, how did you sort of cope with it in the ages sort of between 14 and to your 30s before um, you had the support group or or even spoken to a therapist?
2: I think it came out in a lot of anger I was, in general, a pretty angry person, very guarded, you know, really on the watch for trust is obviously a big issue, I think, for most survivors. And that's probably the thing we have to grieve for most. And before you start to address those directly, you're not really sure where they're coming from, or what do people who haven't experienced trauma experience anger as? Mm -hmm. Is it the same or different? It was, I'd never even considered that before. So, you know, I think I hear the story a lot and it's my story too that I went to therapy for all kinds of things, uh, suicidal depression and anger management, but until I started to directly address the topic of sexual abuse and to kind of understand how, where some of my coping mechanisms came from and how they might have been helpful
1: then, but they're <laughs> maybe not very helpful now. Right. And Tara, when you, when it was actually happening, did you know what was going on? I mean, ten is, is very young and we know that there are some, mm-hmm. um, you know, survivors who were abused even younger, yeah. but you don't really have an awareness of your sexuality or, some, you know, really what's yeah. going on.
2: I think that's a very tricky one I think in my situation and like a lot of people who are abused by close family members it's something that takes place over a long period of time and starts in very small steps and often you're told that's what love is and you may not even have the language to describe what the acts are but what you might feel is that the person doing that loves you a lot so that's very conflicting because what do what do kids want most to be loved by the people that are close to them.
1: Right.
2: So it's it's fairly complex and I think it works out over time in a in a really complicated situation for the survivor in that there's usually some shame involved in that because there was a the family structure that you lived in that said this is normal. And you might have even felt like it was normal because when you're tiny how do you know what goes on in other people's homes
1: right exactly your your whole world is basically your family when you're a child that young so whatever <laughs> happens there is normal that's that's really yeah. all you know
3: yeah beth what about you What what's your story i was five years old the first time that i was assaulted by my grandfather um it happened to me again when i was eight um and then i lived in a in a home um in my, my grandfather um, had also um, abused my aunt repeatedly um, for years when she was younger, similar to, to Tara's situation. Um, and you know, I think I think my my father, in particular, in trying to protect me, um, sort of became his own. Um, you know, he, he was his own victim and surviving his own issues growing up in the house that he would have would have grown up in so I grew up as, as a kid in a home with a lot of domestic violence um, my father was a pretty severe alcoholic um, and then I was date raped again when I was 15 um, in, in high school um, and then bullied uh, incessantly after that it, it didn't actually turn out um, quite the way that the, the boy who assaulted me wanted it to turn out and so I was bullied um, for a long time after that when I was in high school and um, for me, uh, I, I I Tell people and charge Harvey say this a lot. So I, I built a wall around me that was 45 years deep and 45 years thick so I mean it started me when I was five, and I never really dealt with it, you know. Along the way, um, so I really, I really started the healing journey and really started to deal with this last year. It's been, it's been right out a year um, for me on a really intensive process, aggressive process to to heal myself, um, and that's that's how I found talk was through that process. Yeah, there, there were some triggering events that happened to me um, over the years, and you know. Same thing I mean, i've been to therapy my life for so many different reasons Never really getting at what the issue was um you know about 15 years ago my aunt uh, came out with her story and that's when i had my first memory of what happened to me when i was five um and you know never you know, again never really processed it just you know sort of going to therapy for whatever reason like I needed to be in therapy at the current moment some other emotional issue I was dealing with and never really getting to the heart of the issue Mm
1: -hmm. and then I had another
3: pretty um, a life-changing triggering event for me a year ago Um, I underwent some therapy that brought back some memories of what happened to me when I was when I was eight um, and really brought forward um, the date rape um, and the bullying that went with the date rape and so I've spent the last year um, lots of therapy, spending lots of time in, in talk, but also really working on my own I statements, right? So so processing out the negative I statements about myself, all the negative emotions that I had brought with me uh, as part of, of survivorship, coping mechanisms, trying to, trying to deal with those. The other issue for me is that one of my primary coping mechanisms is dissociative amnesia. And so I have, you know, there are vast, vast portions of my childhood, um, through high school, through university, even into the early years of adulthood that I just don't I don't remember. And I don't go picking at that to try to figure out what might be buried there. Um, I just sort of trust the process and trust what I've been doing to heal myself, trust my brain to protect me if there's something there that I still need to, to be protected from. But still doing the really the hard work to go from being just a survivor um, to being someone who's going to have a really great and fulfilled life and be able to thrive in my life. So, right. Um, um, yeah.
1: I mean, how do you how do you feel now that you've you know you've sort of broken the surface on on this wall that you've you built? And it, I'm sure it's raw and it's painful. But do you, is
3: yeah. it is it better for you? It is. So it has been it's been very raw, very painful. Um, I've cried a lot in the last year, um, but I feel I feel freed of. Bondage, because I, I feel like I'm freeing myself from. Really, I've, I've said this before. I feel like I'm freeing myself from a life sentence that somebody had had given to me of of bondage, of not being able to be wow. fully myself and to really um, live my life to the to the fullest must, potential of it.
0: It must feel quite liberating to meet other people who've gone it through is. It a is. similar experience yeah. and just to have that support as well. Um, yeah. And by the way. Beth and uh, Tara, thank you so much for really your sharing. It's incredible and, and it's not easy to share such personal stories with our listeners. So thank you so much for, for, for sharing that with our listeners. Um, going back to, to, to both of your abuse, at that time, were the adults in your life aware? Could, could you talk about it? Because a lot of the times these are sort of guised as games or as secrets. And what do we do? We don't talk about secrets. They are sort of buried in our hearts um was it a secret in in your situation could could you tell a trusted um adult in your life
2: no um no i couldn't um Tarot. i felt i couldn't is the point um in my family the the story that my dad gave me was that we needed to protect my mother because she was fragile and it would hurt her wow so I and I never did. And I didn't, you know, it was a pretty small nuclear family. We lived in the countryside and I never did. Um, and that's very manipulative
0: of. Very manipulative. Yeah,
2: because And, and that's <laughs> that's a yes. great skill if you're a, yes. a child abuser. Yes. Um, so I. Yeah, that's a that's a complicated topic. And I hear all kinds of different stories. But usually the story is something around uh, manipulated either out of fear, phys- fear of physical harm, or big fear of loss of love. If you tell that person, they're not going to love you anymore. And, you know, that's a big driver when you're a little person. Yeah. Um, but over over time in my family, um, so my cousins were all my first um, cousins, female cousins, were abused also um, by different people in the family. And at some point in my later teens, we actually knew about one of them and their parents knew. But then no action was really taken at that time, at that age. So it was another Mm -hmm. message that you just lock that item away in the background and get on with it. Mm It's kind of my attitude when I was young, just because I didn't know any other way to deal with it.
0: Did you yeah, know absolutely. at that time that it was it, it was something wrong? It was something not right, and it was something not normal.
2: Sure, by fourteen, yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But it, it did not start that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Beth. What, also, makes you feel pretty strange towards your own parents, who are supposed to be the people who love you, protect so, you, absolutely.
3: Yeah.
2: yeah,
3: yeah. Beth, what about you? Yeah, so this is like the big secret in our family. So um, it's like it's like the it's like the thousand pound elephant that's in the room, and nobody wants to talk about it. So my um, my aunt actually is now sort of a black sheep of the family. When she came out, everybody got really angry at her um, about that. And um, you know, I mean, I mean, the first time that I was I was abused, I was five, and before I turned six, my parents had left. So I was living in the U.S. My parents had left the U.S. and we moved to Dubai in 19. 19- 1975. Um, And so I, you know, sort of my, I think my father running away from the issue, you know, it was, it was during the the second time I was, I was abused. It was on a a Christmas holiday when we'd come back to visit, we'd come back to visit family. Um, But you know, so he was like constantly running away from it. You know, so I, I grew up in the Middle East and Southeast Asia until I graduated from high school and just, you know, the family was away. Um, But it was never I mean, even to this day, it's not something that, that gets talked about. And in fact, it's it's a struggle for the family right now because I'm talking about it because it's it's quite easy for me actually to talk about it. So, you know, the healing work I've done, I, I feel quite comfortable having the conversation about what's happened to me. It's just sort of facts about me, same as my hair's brown. It's just something that's happened to me and a, a part of who I am today. Um, they don't like, nobody likes talking about it. It's very uncomfortable for the family <laughs> right yeah, now because the elephant's still very much, very much there. Yeah, you know, and it's all, all the, which I think, you know, I think a lot of, you know, you know, people who are victims and and survivors that we deal with is there's, you know, it was the sort of the, the victim shaming was the the thing you said earlier in your opening statement, Karen, that we do deal with that. And um, there's a lot of second guessing, like, oh, you're, you're just making that up. That never happened. And, you know, how, how can you, I'm five, prove? I'm five. I can't prove what happened to me at five. I can just tell you what I remember now. And it's very vivid memories of what happened to me when I was five. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's difficult to have the conversation within the family because you know nobody nobody wants to talk about it. There's this whole concept in my family of like you know, like a, a birthright of respect. And so you 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 have to respect the elders and you respect the family name and no matter is, what. Just no matter what, which is just ridiculous. Um, but that's what we're doing. We're we're respecting the family name and respecting the elders.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think that's that's the same in in Asia, you know, that these kinds of things they're too shameful for the family to deal with so you yeah. just have to suffer in silence yeah. and yeah. you know deal with it on your own we don't want any we don't want our our friends or our business associates or anyone else to know about this
0: yeah yeah it's very true Ta- uh, tara tara you look like
1: you're about to up yeah. something
2: <laughs> And I, and I lost it immediately. So please well, keep going. <laughs> I was just
1: gonna I was just gonna say, since you know, since this led you to set up Talk Hong Kong, mm. tell us a bit about what the early meetings were like and and you know, how did you what was the response like? Yeah, early meetings. Wow, pretty nervous making for
2: me because I was still on that, am I the right person? Can I can I set an environment for people that will be helpful and, and am I gonna be responsible in the right way, all those things. So the first couple meetings, honestly, no one turned up and that turned out to be a good thing because it gave me some time to settle down and go through that process and not be so nervous about it. And then people started coming one by one, which is um, kind of funny thing. To, you know, uh, Number one, there's the question of how do I get people who have um, suffered abuse to come to a room that they don't know to meet a stranger they've never met i was nervous making right not so appealing right right? the first couple times where it was just one person and me, a little bit awkward but it slowly grew into you know two and three and now an average meeting is six to eight people which is just about the right size and we will think about having two different groups probably one for people who are abused as adults and one who have more childhood stuff to work with but for the moment that, that overlap of what people deal with is pretty similar so it's worked out well Tara yes, I, might have to, out-
0: I might have to ask you to hold that thought as we need to break for the 2.30 news now so we'll return sure. uh, to this topic uh, for our listeners on Facebook and our viewers there uh, stay with us uh, we'll return uh, to this topic of uh, child sexual abuse uh, after the 2.30 news a quick look at the weather for
1: Welcome back. You're listening to the Agenda Cafe this afternoon on Radio 3 with me, Karen Ko, and Noreen Nia. And today we're talking with two amazing women uh, who are both involved with uh, the support group called Talk Hong Kong, which is a group to help survivors of childhood and adult sexual abuse we're with Tara Edgar who's the founder and also Beth Janelle who's a member of Talk Hong Kong's advisory network and we're also on Facebook live so go over to Noreen's Facebook page Noreen Mia on RTHK Radio 3 and you can see as well as here all of us there so Tara sorry we interrupted you for the news but you were talking about how um meetings first went and now you have say six to eight people tell us you know what happens during a meeting
2: yeah something something people are always curious about before they come and of course joining me like that you're a little bit nervous Mm -hmm. so we normally run like a sharing session and you can think about um something like 12-step programs that have sharing sessions like Alcoholics Anonymous so if you're in the mood to talk about a certain topic or you're in the frame of mind, you can, but it's absolutely not necessary. Uh, we don't ask anybody personal information. It's not about sharing the details of what happened to you back then, um, unless unless you feel a need to do that. But the most part of the meeting is focused on what's going on for you in your life now? How's it affecting you? What kind of coping skills are you using? Um, and I think Uh, The 12-step programs do have a great idea of listening to other people talk about how they cope with their issues can teach you a lot and maybe give you a chance to share how you're coping with things and we give lots of advice to each other about therapists we like and um, you (laughs) know books we've read How we try to calm ourselves down in stressful situations Mm -hmm. maybe if you've been triggered. yeah, so that's the main part. We always have a backup topic, and we do use a lot of content from The Courage to Heal, which is a great book for survivors.
0: But oh, it's, by it's Laura Davis. It's free-flowing
2: and no pressure at all to get into
1: detail.
0: By Laura Sorry? Davis. Yes, Yes. and ellen bass yes very good book, That's great uh, book. I, I was going to say um, well speaking of that book then it uses uh, very great language you know part of the language is part of the healing as well you know using words like survivor rather than victim how important is it for society and for everyone to just really be able to use the right language when we're talking about things like sexual abuse survivors or or child survivors
2: I mean, it depends on the context, and it also depends on the person you're talking to, how sensitive they are about that and how they feel about it. But I think in general, in media, uh, it also depends on if you're talking about a legal, for example, we do a lot of advocacy work, and there we're using the term victim because that's a legal status. Ah. Um, for myself, I do use survivor, and I think a lot of people do. I, if, I, if I had to choose one as a general go-to, I think that would be a good one. Yeah. yeah.
1: One, um, you know, when you run the meetings, do you find that people, there's common threads or there, there are common um, things that everybody goes through having had this experience?
2: Yeah, uh, trust, really top of that list, whether it was childhood or adult assault, trust and regaining that and how to trust yourself on whether you trust someone is a big topic. Um, mm-hmm. I think for most people, there's also an element of shame, especially at the early stages. And really, there's one thing about intellectually understanding it wasn't your fault. And then there's feeling that it wasn't your fault. And, and that takes time. And I think talking through that and hearing other people's stories helps a lot with that. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Beth That's and... A yes. grief. Sorry. Go grief is on. I I sure.
2: Yeah. And we just had a session about that recently. Grief was the topic. and trying to think about what are we grieving for is it the physical act a lot of times it's not it's the loss of trust and the fact that you know like Beth and I are just getting to know ourselves fully and be able to express ourselves fully and that's that's a big loss I think to have to have not been your your whole self for most of of your life
1: I, I have a very personal question for you. you don't have to answer it but how does how did your abuse impact on your relationships and and also how you feel about sex because you know sex for most people is supposed to be something done in a loving um relationship and a trusting relationship
2: Mm. for for me personally uh i was probably overly comfortable with using sex as a tool really so That was a a well-trodden path that I knew how to use and did not need to be attached and probably preferably if it was not attached to too much personal emotion, which has definitely changed a lot for me over the past 10 years, but I think I spent all my 20s and 30s in that frame of mind. But it impacts relationships a lot, Mm trust-wise. I think the very first book that I read, actually, I was in California visiting my cousins specifically to talk to them about what happened in our family for the first time as adults to really talk about it. And they that was a fantastic experience in itself. And it's what made me confident that talk was so necessary. But uh, it just so happened that one of my cousin's book club friends recommended her The Courage to Heal and she got it home literally the same day it was recommended. We went to buy it and we opened it up. And I think one of the very first questions is, Describe what trust feels like in a relationship, and we both just looked at each other and we were like, <laughs> "I don't, I don't even, I, I don't actually know what that means, and I definitely
3: couldn't describe it." And wow, that was,
2: yeah.
3: that was an eye opener. Yeah, that's amazing. Beth, what about you? Yeah, so in my uh, in my early years um, before I was married, I was very confused about sex and love, and like they had to to go together for me and so I'm very confused about like what committed relationships meant and sort of that all needed to tie together for me. Um, I got married when I was very young so I've been married for for 30 years um, and I'm actually exiting the marriage now Um, and you know there's some codependent issues within that relationship that I now see and understand uh, very well. Um, but there was no there was never really any um, because it was a codependent relationship. There was never really any intimacy in that relationship. So um, it's one of the things that I, I grieve for myself. And I'm actually trying to take some steps now to to change that. But I don't I've never truly experienced an intimate relationship with a, a romantic intimate relationship with um, for me for with the man, um, which is very sad for me. It's it is something that I. I have dealt with some grief um, recently around this issue, but again, I'm I'm good. I'm 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 doing my work to keep moving and keep moving forward in the healing journey, and uh, I feel pretty confident at this point that I'm going to be over to be able to overcome this one as well. So I'm actually quite excited about where I am at the moment in my life with this. So oh, that's, that's great. You. I mean.
1: Yeah. We both have such great attitudes and that, I'm sure, is is half the battle, just sort of getting to that positive um, mindset. And, you know, another thing I mentioned at the top of the show is that society and and many people have misperceptions about, you know, what survivors are going through. And it's like the common question they ask, um, uh, sorry, domestic abuse survivors, like, why didn't you leave? You know, why didn't you just walk away? Um, And... People don't really think of where am I going to go. What are the consequences? Is do you get that those similar misperceptions about why didn't you speak up? Why didn't you say something?
2: Not as regularly uh, because we were so young when those things happened. Mm-hmm. But yes, that is a topic that comes up. Why didn't you tell? And I think we both describe situations where either you weren't believed or the shame and the fear of causing someone else pain was so high that it did not seem like a possibility. Um, (laughs) One of my first therapy sessions, I was saying the same thing about myself, why didn't I leave earlier? And my therapist looked at me and she said, but you left home at 16, how much earlier should you have left? (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Yeah, and that, that was part of my process of understanding that starting to believe that it was not my fault.
3: But yet the misperception about why didn't you tell is there? Yeah, well, I mean, for me, I mean, for 35 or 30 years, what happened in five until I was 35, I mean, it it was was just gone. It was blocked. I didn't even even know, right? Right. So how am I going to say anything if I don't even know? And then my experience once I had the first memory, and now I need to start dealing with was, you know, within my family, which is what I thought was the right place to try to deal with it was, you know, this is this is the elephant in the room. We don't talk about it, and mm. so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't until, um, you know, it wasn't really until the last year for me. And I, you know, I found talk uh, and Tara, probably within five or six weeks after, after the the life-changing event for me last year and I mean, it was just like pouring out of me suddenly <laughs> once I was you know, in a safe environment to be able to talk about it and I was surrounded by people who understood me and had, had similar experiences in their lives and you know, I was learning I was reading like crazy as well so I was getting this amazing new vocabulary and having both an academic and clinical understanding of what's happened to me and my trauma responses and so it just I mean it just like at that point just started pouring out of me but you know before that it just I guess it's it was just locked away. I would say. It's just yeah. Yeah, it's blocked yeah. away. Yeah. yeah, I don't
2: think in society in general we have a good understanding of traumatic memory, and I certainly didn't until you know the last five years. But you know, imagine that a huge trauma happens to you, especially when you're very young and you don't have the language for it in the first place. But if you were in an earthquake, after the earthquake, you will hear lots of people saying, "We were in an earthquake, yeah. and that was dangerous, but we survived." Mm-hmm. In this situation, not only did you not have the language for it, you're not going to hear anyone talk about it, Mm -hmm. and the avenues to holding on to that memory are minimal, plus your brain is doing a big juggling act of trying to protect you against, you know, just pure survival level. So I think I hear that story quite often, not exclusively, but quite often my brain just Blocks it out, yeah.
0: Compartmentalizes yeah. things, and you don't really remember yeah. it. And then you sort of look back at it, and you think, "This happened to this girl," and actually, that that girl is you. And then, but, and now as an adult, having that distance, yeah. it, it, do you feel sort of protected from it? I mean, or is it still when you go through your, your therapy sessions and when you go to talk Hong Kong with, with, with other survivors, does is it still triggering? or can it be triggering for, for other survivors? And that, that, yeah, that's part can. of the reason why it some can. people don't go to therapy or don't go to support groups because... Yeah. Um, they're worried of of, of being triggered, yeah. and 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 sometimes it's mm. and it's not a healthy way. I'm not condoning. Sometimes it's almost easier to just put it away and not think about it, and not deal with it. But actually, as you both know,
2: <laughs> how do you think we got? <laughs> <laughs> <Because> we
0: <laughs>
2: Absolutely, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that that's the importance of having a good trauma informed therapist, though, yes. who's really cognizant of the fact that. Memories, especially when you feel out of control of the memories or uh, Or don't have any coping skills to deal with the memories even when they come as a surprise A good therapist can help you with that and uh, Although we are not health mental health care professionals or doctors in the group You'll also be in a room full of people who have had that experience and can share with you a little bit about How they have worked through coping with that and I think the thing about memory can be really intimidating, especially at the beginning. But I want to say it does ease off a lot. Um, I think knowing that you have a few more coping skills to deal with those and also getting to a point. I think a lot of people experience this thing in the beginning. They're very afraid of the memories and then they want to uncover every single one of them. Right. And then at some point you realize wow.
3: maybe you don't need to see every little thing. Yes, you know i've actually gotten to the point now where i i just trust my brain if i don't need to see that and know about it i'm not going to go picking at it and so my process of getting through therapy with my trauma therapist has been to work on the emotions and so every time i needed to deal with i was dealing with shame i spent like three weeks before and I would go through this process of gathering my shame bucket. And so I would like think about all the things that made me feel shameful and like what's the negative I statement for me that's attached to that shame mm-hmm. and the therapy that I do would help to reframe that and to reprocess that, basically reprogram- reprogramming it so that it became a much more positive I statement, but I never, I've never like worked on trying to like figure out what the memories are that I don't have anymore. like what happened to me like the things that I don't remember because I, I don't remember bad and good which is mm. sad for me because there's a lot of good memories that I would like to I would like to have that I don't but picking at that like I said I just I just trust my brain and I have a really good therapist who's been able to help me go through the healing process without having to go back and get the facts around right. everything that ever happened to me which is I think right. a, kind of a really good therapist yeah I mean because- I
1: would also
2: comment here that Beth is very project focused, as am I, and has kind of sped through and is doing very well. Not everyone's gonna take that breakneck pace. I think it's absolutely fine to go a lot slower. We have a lot of people who say, oh, I found the group six months ago and I just kind of worked myself up to coming now. So, you know, take also really take it at your own pace. And I, but I there are other situations, though. For example, if you are wanting to pursue legal action, mm-hmm. that's a really different state of mm-hmm. mind. And that's where an organization like Rain Lily that deals with yes. crisis stuff and can really support you with um, very focused therapy, as well as uh, the judicial, the medical, the et cetera. But we are talking about situations for us where we're not in... Yeah.
0: Like, active litigation, yeah, for yeah. example.
2: Yeah. So that kind of memory is, is, is only related to our healing process. Mm-hmm. But I can imagine that for people who are in a different phase, mm-hmm. yeah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> I
1: don't know. Yeah. In one thing at the moment, Tari, uh, the group is only open to women, right? Uh, do you, I mean, do you plan to open it to men as well?
2: Ah, that, that yes, I would love to have a group for men and it is for women and femme presenting people who okay. view themselves that way. Um, and in the beginning, I really I really struggled over that because I don't like anything that divides down gender lines. And I thought a lot about what's the right thing to do in this case. And I think um, the, the book, The Courage to Heal, which is written specifically for women, helped me think through that a lot because there are a lot of issues that socially, physically, that are a little bit different. And the other fact is that it's one in seven women are abused. Yeah. And it's 99% men. And I would not wanna put people in a situation where they were not as comfortable having a man in the room. Yes. And I, I, I wish that we didn't have those issues to contend with. And I would love to meet a man who was ready to start his own group Come, come and find us wherever you are. <laughs> but yeah. for the moment, yes, it's separate.
0: Um, I, I want to ask. Um we, we talked about the, uh, the issue of trust. I mean, I'm just so curious about at what point in your life did you sort of uh, and through your therapy sessions, could you then trust yourself again? Because I think that's such a beautiful thing to be able to do, just to be able to trust yourself. Trust still working your own- on it. That's yeah. exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. So i trying to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all are to, to an extent.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so- A lot of the things we're talking about here about trust and getting to know yourself and all those things that's something every human being, I think, struggles with. But yeah, I I definitely think that um, getting to trust yourself and your own judgment is a very big deal because your coping mechanisms and that kind of early manipulation might have led you to make some interesting decisions in life. Right. yeah, need to work through. So the answer is we're still working still on it. And I might be <laughs> I might be until I
1: die. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I, don't
2: I mean said me. I, if I'm you're not curious about what's going on with you anymore. I also yeah, just probably won't grow I, very much. I also it's just love the journey. way that
0: yeah. Tara and Beth you know you both have such great sense of humor and just really making a subject that's often difficult and uncomfortable for some people to talk about and and to listen to so approachable um, and I think it's so important that that we continue this uh, conversation um where did you sort of you know get that I don't know how to explain that sort of sense of humor when, when talking about something that's um, quite traumatic so dark. Yeah. yeah. And, and and has caused a great deal of, of, of trauma for, for you both.
2: Uh, well, not all coping skills are bad that's right, that's right. <laughs> and humor was one of mine. Um, I remember early therapists I went to, I think I definitely manipulated some therapists who weren't trauma specialized <laughs> with my humor <laughs> aspect but i think that's that's just part of my nature and i think it's also a bit mood lightning and i do want to be able to laugh at myself and it's something that happens in group too that's something that's nice to be in that environment you know if you tell your friends who don't have a trauma background sometimes just and, and out of really wonderful care for you they're heartbroken to hear that And sometimes you do end up comforting them, which is totally fine. But sometimes you want to go to a group where if you laugh laugh about something that somebody else might find a little inappropriate, you'll find a lot of people in the room do. And whether for stress relief or the ridiculousness of the situation, it's nice to have a little bit of mental relief around that. Yeah, a bit of levity goes a long
3: way, right? Yeah, Um, I think think for me, it's about it's about getting free from the, the bondage, the wall I've lived behind forever, and so I just, I just feel, I just feel like a massive relief. I'm just super happy about that. And it, I mean, it, you know, that came from a, a terrible place. Why I was like that, but I'm, I'm freeing myself, and that's great. And you know, for me, um, you know, you, you mentioned it at, at the top of the show. What I do um, professionally, and I feel a tremendous responsibility and a sense of a need to give back and to try to educate, um, create more awareness, and, and being able to help people. And so if I'm going to do that, I need to be able to speak about it freely, openly, be happy and positive about it, to keep some levity about the topic because it is so difficult. And I, I think it's important um, for me, just my, my mindset and the advocacy work that we're doing, will continue to do, that is really important um, to be able to be, you could connect with people, right? To make people comfortable in, in the conversation of what you're talking about. And yeah. it just, you know, it's otherwise just they'll the never meet with you. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, exactly yeah yeah that, no that's exactly right because it is a difficult subject it's, it's scary so, you know yeah. sort of disarming for mm-hmm. people to be able to to be positive uh, about about you know where i am in life now um, despite the earlier parts of my, yeah. my life well let's talk oh, a bit okay. more about your advocacy because yeah, so you know actually, you know yeah. Tell us
1: exactly what you're trying to do with with legal reform. And the other thing I want to talk about, if we have time later, is is also prevention. Are there there ways of preventing, you know, child sexual abuse? Well, these are the same topics, actually. Uh, So I knew from
2: the beginning that I wanted to do advocacy work, but, uh, you know, it's a step by step. We're all work in progress. Um, So my first opportunity was I realized that the Hong Kong Law uh, review commission was actively working on and had been for over a decade all kinds of laws related to uh sexual offenses when i became aware of it it was just at their very last phase which is about uh sentencing for sexual offenses so uh, my first thought was hey I can definitely do it myself but it would be so much more um detailed if i could find some legal resources so it just so happened that beth was ready to work on some stuff too and between us we both work with lawyers quite a lot and we started reaching out to our contacts and eventually what we found was uh, the knowledge exchange program at hong kong U and the law department there uh, provided us with two lawyers who we continue to work with one of whom is amazing Uh, One of whom is also on the advisory network now, who helped us submit a very detailed response to that, which will be seen by the Commission fairly soon, I think, and hopefully in Ledgeco by the end of the year. But then we, in the process of doing that, we realized that the amount of data available here in Hong Kong about what the scale and scope of the situation is, is... Uh, not as evolved as it is in any, in other jurisdictions, although I would say nobody in the world is doing brilliantly, but if you look at the UK, uh, they have some great gap analyses and data provided by the CSA Centre in the UK, and that's an amazing tool because You know, we can tell our personal stories. We have a feeling for what the situation is. Ray Lilly does some great reporting about people who specifically come to them. They can give insights on that, but as to what's going on in society at large, very difficult when you don't have the numbers to light a fire under legislators, schools, and even just for parents to understand that this is not a one in a million Somebody and for government, and the government
0: love numbers and, and data, yes. and oftentimes yes. they, if you want to, yes. you know, propose something, they, they need it. Trouble with something like this, it's hard to gather data. People are people view it as a taboo. People don't want to share yep. their
2: experiences. You, There is is some data publicly available through the police department, and the social welfare department, um, and we are using that. There are also other sources, and that's what we'll be looking at is reviewing all the sources. But I think something that the CSA Center in the U.K. does really well that helps educate the departments and get them involved is to look at where could we improve that data through reporting? What does it mean when we don't have it? what's the impact of us not knowing that? Because we'll get some raw numbers that show the scale is quite large, but then the trail goes a little bit cold. So right. being able to look at that gap analysis is really important for our future work. So we will be engaging with departments when we have when we have numbers to show, but uh, the Hong Kong U, knowledge exchange program in the law
0: department yes, is amazing. Yeah, yeah. We've it. got about three minutes before the news. Yeah. Just very quickly touching on prevention. I, I don't have the statistic on me, but a, a lot of um, sort of uh, child sexual abuse happens when the survivor, when the victim knows the perpetrator. It's often uh, sometimes a family member, sometimes a, a family friend. Uh, these are people who, who, who are really trusted by the family and, and are not really avoided in social situations how can it be prevented?
2: Well, that's where the education about these basic situations are important. and I think it's important to parents, it's important to educators, but you know, people who abuse children are not the scary looking guy who looks like they might do something. They're the person who has made sure that you as the parent trust them, and that they're intimately involved in your family. So and having some knowledge about what the prevalence is so that you can be a little more focused on if some adult needs to be alone with your child, do they need to? And in what circumstances will they be? And really, I'm I'm not a doctor, so I hesitate to say this, but uh, surely watching very carefully what your child is trying to show you non-verbally is really important and i right. hesitate to give expert advice yeah. about what that is there are experts out
0: there but just if they're all numbers acting differently, all, all manner of
1: acting out
2: absolutely yeah. if they're but,
0: angry or it, if they're just withdrawn yeah. i'm or not if they, want,
1: if they don't want to go sit on their uncle's lap maybe there's yeah.
2: i am yes. a big believer a in life. if your child says no i don't want to hug mm. no i don't want to kiss you should listen to that and mm. see What that's about Mm -hmm. not that it's always about this but if it's one out of seven girls think about the chances that it might be i mean mean,
3: that's what they think yeah exactly i see i saw something in another part of the world the other day that said it was one out of three yeah so it's i I don't think we really know what the prevalence is actually and maybe not really anywhere in the world
2: so i think just being a lot Mm -hmm. more aware that how it usually happens is very close to home
0: yeah and
1: that in itself is is empowering Exactly. Um, yeah. um, before we, I know we don't have much time, Noreen, but before we wrap up, Tara, tell us if people do want to join um, Talk Hong Kong, if they want to come to a meeting, if they want more information, how how can they find you? Uh, our website is
2: the best place to go. That's talkhongkong.org. We also have a Facebook page, which is primarily just for um, events, news and also meetup.
0: Tara, okay. Beth, thank well, you so wanted- much. Yeah, sorry, going, Karen.
1: Yeah, no, I just wanted to say thank you so much for for coming on today and and really being so candid, so open with your own personal stories and also offering some some, um, help there for people English speaking who may need support and don't really know where to go.
0: Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so much, much to, to, to you, Beth, yeah. and also Tara. Incredible, amazing woman who's shown incredible resilience starting this wonderful group, Talk Hong Kong. Thank you so much for your sharing, and thank you very much to uh, you, Karen Ko, and thank you to all our listeners uh, for tuning in this uh, afternoon. I'll be back at the same time on Monday. Have a great weekend, everyone.